Welcome to Darkly Lit, where we look back at our past transgressions and either run from it, learn from it, or pray that the elk head woman doesn't challenge us to a basketball game like we're in fucking Space Jam. <laughs> I'm your host, Kayla King. I'm joined by my other two wonderful co-hosts. First up, Sade. Hello. I got nothing, nothing clever to say. Sorry. It's okay. And uh, my other co-host, David. Red alert, there are a lot of dead dogs in this one. I know. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just putting that out there. If you made it this far with us, if you read the book, then you know there are dead dogs. And I'm sorry if that's a that's a hard point for you. Definitely hit me a couple times. So, uh, yeah, dead dogs. You don't like hearing about dead dogs? There's a lot of dead things in this one. Is this our most gruesome story in terms of, like, the gore and death? Or did, does uh let me... Let the right one in. Still, um, this is up there with let the right one in in terms yeah. of I think how grisly it is. I I think let the right one in is spread out more. Where yeah. this was like kill after kill after kill after kill. Hmm. I feel like this one was a little more gruesome in that I think I felt a couple of the deaths more in this one than I did in let the right one in. Oh, me too. If for those who don't know, we just finished reading. Um, the Only Good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones. This is a writer we've read before, which is, uh, we read Demon Theory, a very different book. Um, <laughs> but I definitely like this one a lot better than I liked Demon Theory, I'm not going to lie. I tapped out so I will on uh, Demon Theory, so I didn't even get through the whole book. Uh, I definitely had a much more enjoyable experience with this one. Demon Theory was an adventure, and I have to applaud uh, Stephen Graham Jones for doing something really experimental and pretty cool in a lot of ways. It was just really hard to wrap my head around the way the prose worked in that mm-hmm. particular story, because it was a, a a film treatment, basically. Yeah. But we're back into traditional novel territory, and oh boy. <laughs> Do you want to give the summary for this one? I guess I will. I actually just finished it properly this afternoon, so... hey i I came prepared what can i say i I mean i started reading it before but i decided to finish the book the day that we're you know recording so the story of the only good indians follows the lives of four native american men in different uh points of their lives who um right from the beginning are killed off in very hideous ways uh due to a incident that occurred in their past where uh, just a few days before Thanksgiving, they were out hunting where they shouldn't have been hunting, hunting elk on the reservation. They killed a young doe who was pregnant. This combined with a bunch of other sort of like taboos and other things brings back the vengeful elk spirit that slowly but surely leads to these men each meeting a gruesome end to some degree. First up, there's Ricky. Ricky is killed in the prologue by a bunch of drunk cowboy assholes who come out of a bar after their trucks get wrecked by a bunch of elk. And of course, they blame him. And you find that a lot of these deaths are set up to be circumstantial, so a bunch of their like lives get ruined kind of before they themselves are killed. We then switch perspective to Lewis A. Clark. Yes, the name is a pun, we learn later on, who um, is brought put into a situation where uh, his... Uh, co-worker and then his wife are violently killed partly due to his paranoia but partly due to the influence of the of the elk spirit and he is then killed by a bunch of yokels with guns while he's on the run 
And then we, the last two are killed in the, the portion, uh, Gabe and, and Cass mm-hmm. are both killed in a portion of the book simply titled The Sweat Lodge Massacre. That part's really fun in terms of horrific shit that happens. So with all of them gone, who does that leave? Well, that leaves Denora, the finals girl. <laughs> I, I, I picked up on that. I did not. That's I didn't funny. either. And now I'm a little disappointed in myself that I didn't realize that sooner. Because <laughs> uh, I actually thought she died because there's a point in the book where you think she was killed by her dad. And I'm like, oh no, my heart was broken. And then all of a sudden it turns out it wasn't her. That was just in his mind. And she's still alive. And I tell David this, I'm like, ah, it was just heartbreaking. He's like, well, I knew she wasn't, that wasn't really her. I'm like, why? How'd you know that? I'm like, well, she's the finals girl, you know, the final girl. And I'm like, what the fuck? (laughs) It's not surprising coming from the author of Demon Theory. I think the craziest thing is just how the book climaxes is uh, Denora, uh, who is a pretty gifted basketball player, ends up in a basketball game with the Elkhead woman who has been possessing people in order to get her revenge. And this Elkhead woman is uh, trying to finish off Denora as sort of a last hurrah. It goes from that to a long, drawn-out chase, slasher-style chase sequence, and uh, ends with a sort of bizarre reconciliation in the very field where the elk were killed long ago with some really magical, mystical stuff. And it's kind of fascinating. Just seeing it go from really pretty nasty, brutal killings to a basketball game of fate to a chase to an elk mother and an elk calf reborn. This book is fascinating. Yeah. And I love it. (laughs) I'll come right out and say I really enjoyed this, despite how freaking gruesome it is. What do you think, Sade? I definitely really enjoyed this. um, One, you guys know I, I I love the gore. I love when things get gross and then bloody. So in that aspect, delicious. But I also really enjoyed just the just the, the narrative of just like how it, it kind of trans- it switched between the different guys. And then it was also partly from the elk woman's perspective and Denora's. And like, I like when you can see into all the characters' minds and just like what's driving all of them individually. So I really enjoyed that aspect. And then... Um, so obviously none of us, the three of us aren't, uh, Native American. Um, Mm-mm. my, well, my father's side is, is, is Native Weichel, Eat Weichel, but like, I, I am so far removed from my father's family and that aspect that I, I don't feel like I have any real claim on it. So the, the perspective was very foreign to us in this, and I really enjoyed that. Because I did, like, in high school, we founded a Native American club that I got to be a part of, and, like, so I have got to learn from the community and experience aspects of the community. You don't see a lot of, like, Native content. And so I was just really happy that we got to enjoy this narrative. I think the book had an interesting blurb. They referred to Stephen Graham Jones as the... um... Jordan Peele of horror literature <laughs> cracked me up. <laughs> I, in one sense, I kind of see it because Jordan Peele does know his um horror, like his horror. He he is genre savvy, and Stephen Graham Jones is absolutely genre savvy. It's true. I mean, this is such a 
serial killer kind of story with this great psychological horror aspect to it. And it gets really down and dirty and gritty all through it, not just in the kills, but like just life living on the reservation or like trying to get away from it and like the culture and like, wow. I mean, and I've seen that I've seen stories like this before where they're like, you know, this is what life actually is like on a reservation. There's, you know, the good and bad. Uh, so much of this book and all through it, even though it does, it doesn't feel like it comes out of nowhere at the end when sort of the big deciding moment is a basketball game between Denora and the Elkhead woman, mm-hmm. because basketball is everywhere in this book. It took a little bit to learn why, but as it were, as we went through, I was like, okay, I, I get it. I get why this is in here more. And I think Kayla, you I'm going to just bring this up now. So we have, uh, of course, we got some questions, which is great. This question popped up quite a bit. Dan Urkelbot666 actually asked, did you feel there was enough basketball representation in this book? I feel like there could have been at least 50 to 75% (laughs) more basketball characters playing basketball, characters thinking about basketball, descriptions of basketball games, techniques, etc. But Bringer also asked a question, why does basketball seem to have so much importance even to the end when Denora is facing the elk lady in a basketball game? And I had to look this up myself because I don't know that much about basketball's connection with Native Americans. But if you Google Native American basketball, there are articles upon articles of how important basketball is to Native American culture, if if not just specific tribes. A lot of the articles have kind of the same idea that one of the reasons is it's a main escape from stress, especially, um, so during like the uh, late part of the 19th century uh, to even through mid 20th century, Native American children were taken from their homes and they were forced to attend boarding schools and basically were taught what western culture and into the point of like abuse like you have to do this if you don't do it this way right the whole assimilation policy Mm -hmm. thing and basketball was that escape uh schools would see basketball as a good form of exercise for them where uh basketball for uh native american children had a lot of parallels to their ancestral sports and actually there is a uh, a version of basketball that they play on the reservation called reservation ball or res ball, which is more aggressive and quicker pace. Mm. One of their our good friends, um, Sakura, is Native American. And I asked her, I decided to ask her like um, about this. I said, "Is have you ever noticed basketball being that important? She admitted she had never grown up on a reservation, but her grandmother and uncle did. And she said, I didn't really notice that much basketball but then as we talked about it more she's like well the reservation that they were at did have a documentary which was focused on the high school basketball team and not only that she said basketball seems to be and it was an important thing for at least the reservation they were on because there was a lot of issues like drug problems and all that and then basketball was that way too get away from that Mm -hmm. i mean i think i think it's obvious how much of an impact it does have and especially the book uh laying it out there it didn't surprise me when we looked it up after that uh basketball became so important that it was essentially adopted um by native culture and it actually uh gave me it reminded me of how baseball was adopted by the japanese 
because, um, uh, like, I was doing uh, work for this professor last, well, right before, not last year, before COVID times. We, I was helping him do, uh, to type up his book that focused on um, the concentration camps that were here in the U.S. when they put the Japanese uh, in internment camps, sorry, as I meant to say. And in those communities that developed in there, they're going through these terrible hardships, but something they rallied around was the coming together to play baseball. So you see that parallel with that with these native children that were in these awful boarding schools, they had their outlet and that was basketball. And then it's in, adopted into that culture as something they can rally together as a community with and be proud of. So uh, I didn't find it all that surprising and I didn't find it all that weird. It's just a really cool thing to learn. Yeah. Yeah. Same. It is a cool thing to learn. I I would have never known or thought to look it up had I not read this book. Mm -hmm. And I am really happy that we uh, did read this book. Uh, When we chose this book for May, we didn't know. I'm going to throw this in now before we get into the rest of this discussion. Um, We chose this book for for May and we didn't realize that uh, just May 5th, which has already passed by the time this episode goes out, but we want to take a moment to acknowledge it. May 5th was National Day of Awareness for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. And so that is just something we want to acknowledge right now. And we are going to have a link in our show notes um, where you can go learn more information and uh, donate if you can. Because that is something that troubles me immensely. And it is something that I try to... Um, stay knowledgeable about there's like 5,000 plus open known cases of just violence against these women and it's it's I can curse it's fucked up okay <laughs> and um, yeah it, it, it's really fucked up this country has a lot of issues and this is one that's very important to me so I'm happy that we chose this book and the timing of it ended up kind of weird so let's take a moment to acknowledge that please check out the link in the show notes um, learn more if you can we, I'll also post it on the Twitter page when we release this episode. That way um, people can know where to donate or it can be much more accessible if necessary. Awesome. Excellent. So one of the interesting things about this book is, I mean, this is the first book that I've seen that includes this. At the back of the book, they actually have topics and questions for book clubs. Perfect. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Now, um, there... do you want to try this? Because this is this isn't. Yeah, it's not often we have questions provided that we didn't have to ask for. Yeah, um, it, there's 15 questions um, that kind of uh, go bo- scene by scene if we want to, and then there's uh, at the end there is a topics and analysis. I guess I can pick and choose. Yeah, let's let's pick some choice questions. Do we want to? Do we want to start out with those questions, or we do want to just kind of? go through the book like we normally do i'm kind of willing to handle handle it that way the the checking out checking out through the questions because i think that'd be really interesting well because you said there are 15 questions for the scenes right maybe we can do one or two questions per the 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 larger scenes yeah we could do that so there is actually only one question um that involves ricky to start with so it says the story opens up with a dark and pessimistic headline that rings true by the end of the prologue what do you think of ricky's prediction do you believe what he saw that night, or was it a figment of his imagination? Could he have changed the outcome? No, I believe it. I'll just, I'll just say that right now. I believe it because we know about the supernatural influence that's already leading through everything. Uh, at that point, the uh, the elk woman hadn't properly manifested, but the herd, the herd remembered. It's like the herd memory kind of thing, you know. Was it a? 
What what was uh, thrashing about on the trucks wasn't a whole a herd. Was it was a single elk at first, uh, and then when he was trying to get away, wasn't there a whole herd? Yeah, but it, yeah, there was a herd watching him as the, the cowboys basically caught up with him. I did very much enjoy that, and that it was kind of like like I feel that first elk that we see that is kind of like staggering about is is maybe the just like the the vengeance of this. Uh, elk woman's spirit kind of manifesting into the world maybe after after so long but uh the just the whole setup the whole prologue of that was just like eerie and it it really set the tone i think for the rest of the book and just kind of like there was this level of realism where uh how ricky kind of sees his situation and just like he's like well shit they're gonna you know, I, I don't want to cause anything that'll bring attention to me or that's going to bring fault to me because then I'm going to get fucked up. His thing with the headlines was really interesting, um, where he kind of kept recreating headlines in his head of just, like, shit that he could see going wrong. Like, that was kind of his way of, like, okay, I can't do that because then this is what's going to happen. This is going to be the headline I turn into. I kind of, when once I realized that was his thing, I was like, oh, you're very screwed. Because I, I <laughs> am very much... I'm not the kind of person that's like, oh, if I if I if I ask the universe for it, it'll deliver. I but I do feel like if you put certain energy out there, you're gonna bend things a certain way that the things are more likely. I don't know. I felt I was like, you're screwed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, are we talking about Ricky in this case, or are we talking about Lewis? Because Lewis is the one who was really who really leaned on the headline thing, but just in his own head. Oh, and I might be mixing mixing it up then. No, no, oh, okay. uh, R- Ricky did a still did a headline because yeah, Ricky had an yeah. actual headline sort of at the beginning, but then later, um, which is what's interesting to me is that we jumped after the prologue to Lewis, and Lewis is always going. He could see the headline, like he sees his own fictional headline. Oh, okay. So I knew you were. I think you were referring to Lewis. Then, yeah, it did. It did kind of blend together. There's points um, where a lot of their stories um, or the different men's stories kind of parallel, whether it be through like. Uh, issues they have with um, their significant others or uh, in this case like headlines was brought up in the prologue that's why they said uh, Indian killed by men at bar or something of that yeah, nature an altercation or something like that it was yeah, yeah wow and then the head uh, but that headline kept being brought up and then it turns out in Lewis's case he does think of headlines yeah actually there is quite a bit of parallels like as the story progresses because then there's a point where the elk woman appears and she looks like she's 14. And then that just happens to lead into Denora, who is an actual 14 year old child. Like, <laughs> and the, I mean, I definitely want to talk about the elk woman because there's some interesting bits there that come that are symbolic, but also like unusual and trying to figure out how the vengeance actually manifests and asking questions like, was Shaney even a real person or cause she kept manifesting basically as Shaney, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's just interesting. There's some, and 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 that also feels a little bit just be, kind of based on demon theory. That also that sort of mystical angle to it, and but the confusion that comes with it also feels like demon theory. Just some of the confusion attached to that uh, idea. When I first read the um, prologue, it did have a feel of the beginning of a slasher film, mm-hmm. where. Oh, person goes by themselves after going out and hanging out for the night and they're by themselves in a parking lot and then the killer slowly comes up upon them. 
and I'm like, okay, that's a very genre thing. And I'm like thinking, okay, is this is what's going to happen throughout them? Is there going to be an elk that appears to them in different, like, I didn't mm. think like in different ways. I actually thought a full on elk was going to appear each time Yeah, and try to kill them in different man- manners. And then I was like, I did not expect a whole story about Lewis becoming paranoid and like his paranoia basically leading to his downfall actually that is there is a question about that um yeah lewis convinces himself that elkhead woman has infiltrated his life first as shaney then as Peta. what convinced him each time did you expect him to kill them both if so at what point did you realize he would go that far he didn't kill peter i will say that much peter's death was a ironic accident he did try to kill shaney oh know. no he absolutely tried he, to kill yeah shaney. Um, and let's be fair he did he did kill Shaney. In a horrific manner that yeah, I did that not was... see coming. Blech. I mean, it's, I think so far, like, the the most horrific death in that part is Harley's death, the dog. Oh. I'm sorry. I mean, there's some pretty... De- well, yeah, no. That dog suffered a lot, unfortunately. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm just talking about in this part, like, uh, yeah. Lewis's part. I mean... I love the little hints that come here and there. I don't think Peter was ever possessed by the Elkhead woman, but then again, it's left kind of ambiguous because we never know who stomped Harley to death. Mm-mm. It could have been Shaney. It could have been Peter. It could have been Lewis. Keep in mind, Lewis is the one who, as we learn later, impregnates Peter when they have that one little thing where he doesn't use protection and does lead to the Elk Elkhead woman manifesting in a physical form. But she might have already been able to do that because when we see Shaney for the first time, and I caught this after I learned the story, she has that blown out eye. She has the like scars on her belly that almost looked like a suture scar that was cut open. Mm-hmm. Same matching the wounds that the, the doe uh, got when she was killed. Mm-hmm. So Shaney, I, you know, that's, that's a big hand. And then of course later, whenever she, the second time Shaney appears after the the Elkhead woman is reborn from PETA, she turns into Shaney again, but now Shaney has has the exact same wounds manifesting. So it's kind of confusing where and when certain things take place, but I I think Shaney was initially the catalyst, you know? Um, But it makes me wonder when before that was she a real person and how long was she the elk woman? Like we, that's the, those are the questions that I'm left, you know, lingering with. Like, cause later on in actually in the third part, um, I believe it's gay. No, Cass's girlfriend. Yeah. Joe. Joe. Joe tells him she just learned that her cousin Shaney has died. Right. That she was one of the, the women murdered by Lewis. Yeah. And it's like, so wait, 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 this was actually her cousin. Like, like you said, when was Shaney actually a person, and when did Elkhead Woman take over? Wait, so before Shaney dies, before Lewis kills her, she had she had the scar over her eye too, or was it just the one on her belly? Because I don't remember that part. No, she. They mentioned she had like a something on her forehead, and then also a blown out like right eye. Oh, just like okay. I feel like when, at least when I was reading the part with Lewis and he was like fixating on Shaney being Elkhead woman, um, in my gut, it felt like it was coincidental uh, that Shaney was just a, a normal 
person and it was all in Lewis's head. So like for me, her death, I was like, no, 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 no. Oh shit. You fucked up. Um, because I feel <laughs> at that point, I don't think she had like manifested fully. If she like had come fully into like a physical form, it was through the baby. This That's just my theory that it was in his head. And maybe it was through the violence of just, like, killing Shaney and then the accident of how, like, Peta's death and just, like, some kind of weird ritual that, that he brought her into mm. a physical form. That's just kind of, like, how it feels, how I, I was reading it all. Because, um, yeah, I feel like Peta and, and Shaney were just innocent victims in this whole mess, along with Harley. I Well, I definitely think that even if, Shaney was the Elkhead woman that early on. I think it was, I, I the impression I got initially was that, oh, she's probably possessed. But again, hard to say. Mm-hmm. But I, I agree. I don't think, I, I think she was innocent when Lewis did what Lewis did to her with the motorcycle. So. See, see, that's the tricky part. Because um, I'm with you, Say, because I thought when he decided he was going to kill her, in my brain, I'm like, this is a real woman. This is not the elk head woman. This is just a normal person. He's basically going to murder someone. And then in my brain, I'm like thinking, oh my god, he he murdered a woman. He like I don't. He wasn't justified. And then later on, when the elk head woman fully becomes Shaney, I'm thinking, my brain, wait, so Shaney actually was the elk head woman? What? But there could be that possibility that he, the elk head woman just took her form. That's what I think. That she just took that form because it had already maybe, in a way, had already been projected onto her. Yeah, like sort of reborn of blood and violence in a weird way, Mm -hmm. you know? Because like she's not able to be born as the elk until Peta dies, which is interesting. And I don't know, it's weird. Like every every death in here does hit hard. But in this section, Peta, like those accidental deaths always always hit me for some reason like her just cracking her head open on the fireplace because she fell off the ladder oh, yeah. like yikes and then of course him like ritually removing her teeth to see if they were ivory that was pretty grotesque yeah that that part was horrifying to me i'm like okay maybe she's nope he's ripping out her teeth he yeah <laughs> it's all symbolic too because like the fact that uh lewis is eventually killed by four hunters on a ridge much like they were mm-hmm and it, uh, there's such good, like, double meaning for things in here. It's great. Uh, again, another good parallel. Four, uh, four hunters kill uh, Lewis. Four hunters kill. There, yeah. there is a. It's all supposed to be this like narrative irony, narrative poetic justice. That and that's what the Elkhead woman is trying to get across. You know, it's like what she's trying to manifest, and I feel like that matches up it's not it's not just she simply runs up and gores you know finds a way to gore someone who does no she has to ruin their lives first and that's definitely more evident in the second part but in the first part yeah her she basically ruins she basically ruins lewis by making him paranoid by hope like prompting all that all she had to do was make a vision of her appear under a ceiling fan that was the beginning of the end um actually that was one of the questions uh dan uh asked of us was Thoughts on Shaney? How long had she been possessed by the Elkhead woman? Was there significance in uh, the return to Shaney form near the end of the book? Or was it more of a convenience to have a semi-stranger interact with Denora? That's a good question. And I think that's when we kind of kind of discussed it. Like, we don't know. We never know for sure with Shaney. So 
I do think it's interesting that they keep drawing the parallel between sort of the crow versus Blackfeet thing. Mm-hmm. So um, that was interesting and does come up and does come full circle at the end, which I really like. The, the very end when Denora, you know, four years later, she loses that one game, but then she makes like a sign with her hand. that's like a symbol of respect to like some, some big thing to the, the fact that they're playing against uh, crow players. And that becomes a big like rallying point in this like hypothetical old man's story about her being this like legend in her own right. That was interesting too. So mm-hmm. they were getting ahead of ourselves. So is there much more to say about Lewis's segment or cause he did. <laughs> <laughs> he did in a really horrible, sad way. And I actually like, uh, I, I got really invested in him as a character. So one thing I could say for sure about this book is that the characters are all sympathetic enough that when they are killed, I feel genuinely bad. Mm-hmm. There's definitely a lot of depth to each character. Like I said earlier, when you like you, you're they're telling their own stories, so you get that depth of the character. And like my thing with all horror stories, like when you're going to be killing off your cast, you got to make me care why they're being killed off. Mm-hmm. That make me feel bad to see them go. And this book mm-hmm. definitely did that with each character. I mean, even Elkhead Woman, you kind of feel sympathetic for. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's interesting because, like, at first when we got to her and then we realized it was from her perspective, it was like, okay, this feels weird. And I was worried it was going to take away the mystique of the character. But it took this monster. And I think if, it, if any other situation, I would have been like, ah, this doesn't work. But it did after a bit. And I was like, okay, I kind of appreciate knowing the length that the Elkhead woman went through to basically be reborn to exact her revenge and essentially that animal instinct to protect her calf. Uh, since we're on the Elkhead woman, um, I'm going to bring up questions that um, both our listeners and one of the book club questions asked. So this is the book club question. As the story progresses, the chapters continue to be told from the perspective of a pivotal character, but with one significant difference. Moments from the elk's perspective are now interspersed. Discuss this narrative choice. How does it affect your view on the unfolding events? Quite a few of our listeners had the same question. Dan asked, how effective of an antagonist do you find Elkhead Woman to be? In terms of narrative and theme, Brian, or at Ceiling Fan Sound, um, asked on Twitter, I'd like to hear about this use of second-person voice later in the book. So stylish. Very stylish. Yeah, I, I I could tell that one of the things that seems to be very important or like people want to know more about is why the choice of going into the Elkhead woman's point of view. And this is later on in the story. This is right after Lewis's story mm-hmm. that we get not just the Elkhead woman's point of view, but it's d- addressed in second person. Like, this is how you feel. This is as though you are the Elkhead woman. I wonder if that relates to almost like putting you in that headspace if that is also a kind of possessive thing in a weird way you know Mm -hmm. she gets into people's heads why shouldn't she get into yours for me i think it was making a distinction of like here's the narrative when human characters are are thinking and here's the narrative when an elk is thinking Mm -hmm. that's what it felt like to me was that distinction Mm mm-hmm it's funny because, like I said, I, I was worried that it wasn't going to work. But if anything, when we got around to the point where she was slowly setting up everything at the sweat lodge, it added to the tension, mm-hmm. I think. It added because you knew she was, you were trying to figure out how she was plotting to basically destroy uh, Gabe and Cass. It cuts away from her at the right times. 
but I love how the near misses are always presented by saying, if that person had looked to the, just a little bit this direction, they would have seen you. And I'm like, ooh, ooh, ooh. I found that really effective. The interesting about this book is, because um, there is a lot of parallels to a slasher film, but usually with a slasher film, it's mostly who is the killer? Why are they doing this? And we already know why she's doing this. We already know who the killer is. This is more the focus on how. We don't know how this is going to happen. And the tension is in, is on how is she going to do this? We know something's going to happen, but it's being built up um, in a way where we're getting to know the characters. We're getting to know what's going to happen that night. It's like, especially in the third part with the Sweat Lodge massacre, where it's all within, I think, a 24-hour period. Yeah. And it's just building up and we're just seeing characters' interactions leading to this moment. And in the back of my brain, I'm just wondering, what's going to happen? What is she going to do? Because clearly she's going to kill them, at least the two men, if not all of them. Because she has no qualms killing people to get what she wants. And how is that going to unfold? I want to go back to what David was saying about the that second person perspective. Because mm-hmm. he, he pointed out how it was those little bits where it was you know oh if they had turned this way they would have seen you it made me realize if when you compare it to like like a slasher movie you have those scenes where suddenly you are looking through the slasher's eyes like i'm imagining you're looking through michael myers mask and you you see them like watching their their next victim and if they had just looked that one way maybe they would have spotted michael that has that same feeling i realize it's the narrative equivalent of a pov shot yeah <laughs> that's really cool like a good way to put it wow uh, that's actually also a common thing in slasher films too but usually from the point of view of the victim like all of a sudden they're like looking and you see something walk or like pass by and they look and just barely miss it that's a really yeah like or you know someone is looking out a window and they walk away you know because have, having not seen it but then your camera is fixed on that spot and then you see like i don't know ghost face standing in the window mm-hmm They've been there the whole time, but you didn't see them because they were blocked until that moment. And it's like, yeah, that's a, it's so cool. This part was gruesome as all heck and really, really shows how manipulative the Elkhead woman's plotting is for their demise. Because it's not just, I need to kill them. It's like, I need to destroy them, take everything from them and then kill them because only then will it feel right. So the series of circumstances that lead to Gabe pushing the truck over onto Joe, not knowing Joe is underneath it. It's like her death was especially bad. I was like, Oh yeah. No. My heart. Uh, actually one of the questions that uh, bringer asked is I was wondering what about the elk killing causes the vengeful spirit. Any other hunter could have done the same thing. Um, and actually it said it reminded him a little of a a Sardinia folklore called Passifera, uh, which is a a spirit that protects Mufflin and warns them of hunters. I looked this up. It is an actual legend, but I feel like there's a lot of folklore that has some sort of spirit that watches over the forest. Like it's a very common thing to see in folklore. Mm -hmm. I think more in this case, yes, hunters naturally kill uh, any hunter could kill an elk, but I think it's the act of the fact that they, especially Lewis, went above and beyond 
and killed uh, an unborn doe within this fawn's belly. I think some of it has to do as well with the fact that they were breaking tradition in their own way. Mm-hmm. They were doing something very selfish, which was, you know, they, they saw it as selfish, but they just they wanted to be, you know, as they, they said, they wanted to be good Indians. They wanted to go out there and be hunters and bring, you know, meat to the tribe. But they go to land that they're not supposed to go to. They go to land reserved for the elders. They only they can hunt there. And the way that they engage in it with kind of the fervor and the violence of it does evoke. And this is what I love that gets called back and during Denora's bit when she's down there, how it's like suddenly they, it was like a role reversal. Here they are up, up above elevated shooting people that were helpless. Where were the Native Americans at one point as well? Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like this combination of factors, I think, came together to re- bring about this one vengeful spirit so vengeful that she literally is reborn as a human to some degree to get revenge for her death and more importantly the death of her unborn calf Mm -hmm. and like even to the point where she's like well i did what i needed to do they're all dead now i need to kill the calf just to make a point i need to kill denora to make a point Mm -hmm. i think i need to satisfy the loss of because you mentioned someone said you know elkhead woman was trying to destroy everything about their lives because that's they they took everything from her mm-hmm. they took her legs they took her spine they took her eye and then took her her baby i feel a uh, part of to add on to the whole thing of like uh they were hunting in on sacred land that they shouldn't have been right um was also the added just they shot all of these elk knowing that they weren't going to be able to take all of it back. Right. And I think it was part of that, that disrespect I think added to it as well. Cause then there's all that, the whole thing of like Lewis tried to take as much as he could, uh, to, to make it worth that, the carnage, uh, where he took the skin, took as, as much of the meat as he could. And then there was that mention of, a. So there's a whole part of like, is this happening because he didn't keep his promise where like he, he held onto the skin. He's like, I'm going to use it. But then he realizes, oh, but I gave away that meat. Uh, what if some elder didn't ever, you know, like, so if that, is that what triggered all this? Like he didn't keep his promise and it was that disrespect of breaking that promise of that death, that murder, all that uh, carnage, and on top of that, breaking the promise. Is that what triggered it on top of all of the things? Um, I don't know. I think, because there was, I, I can't remember the line exactly, but I think there was somewhere at the end with Denora where she's in that uh, that field or what the place where the elk were shot down, where she was kind of like something about respect and just like, I don't remember what it was. It was a few days ago now when I finished it. But I remember there being something like that, where it was like amends for that disrespect, for that loss of life. And that, I do remember that happening at the very like climax, which is, again, what kind of kind of bleeds into the whole thing about respect that comes with uh, Denora being talked about when she loses the game, having this sign of respect for, you know, the, the other the other team for, for to go with all the basketball stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's interesting because like, you know, you make some really good points, how much of it factored into that particular situation, because, you know, it wasn't like it was that long after in the grand scheme of things that Ricky is killed, not by the elk head woman herself, but by the, by his death is caused by an elk. 
mm-hmm. an elk setting things up so he will take the fall and he sees them he sees them all watching him off in the distance and so it's like the herd remembers but also like i mean i think she even says like she was kind of almost this just this hazy force among the elk for a while before the opportunity presented itself where she could get like strong enough to be reborn so and it took some circumstances so can we talk about denora or do we have any questions that relate to denora I do want to, like, just be like, I feel really bad for Nathan before we move on to Denora. Oh, Nathan. Aww. Is it bad that a part of me, uh, as I'm reading this part, and I knowing we're going to have this discussion, and he, he pours one out for his friend Trey. There's a part of me that wondered if Sage was going to, in the back of my mind, ship <laughs> Trey and Nathan. And that's why he was so no. broken up about it. They were more than uh, friends. I- Surprise! This will be a surprise, but I I did not ship anyone. (laughs) I don't I don't mean to peg you like that, but (laughs) no, it's all good. Totally justified. (laughs) But people can be really, really, really crushed by the death of a friend, especially in those kind of circumstances. It doesn't have Mm -hmm. to be romantic, but you never know. (laughs) No, absolutely. Um, But let's talk about Nathan. Poor kid. It's interesting that how they are killed is actually during a sweat lodge or which is actually a from what it gathered, it's kind of a, a sacred thing to Native American culture. But, oh, yeah. But apparently the way it's done is almost like half fast. <laughs> this one like, is a half fast. Where it lodge. smells like wet dog because of, um, oh, my God, the bl- was it blankets or it was, it was just a bunch of blankets. blankets. Mm-hmm. Blankets and like sleeping bags, right? Yeah. Yes, it was sleeping bags. That's in that the dogs like <laughs> kind of a weird parallel back to Harley too. It's what did they wrap him up in a bunch of sleeping bags? Poor guy. Oh, there you go, another one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know they talk about how no one would kill anyone in a in a, in a sweat lodge, and even to that degree, the Elkhead woman has to set things up so they leave the lodge before she can start killing them all. Oh yeah, you're right. That is interesting. Because, like, she first, uh, well, other than the dogs, and actually, one of the things that I remember is that, I I think this gets brought up that, like, the elk's meat that might have been stuck at the back of the freezer Mm -hmm. was fed to the dogs. Oh, yeah. And that could be seen as disrespectful, and that's probably why Cass's dogs were killed. Or is it Gabe's dogs? It was was Cass's dogs. Cass's dogs, yeah. Gabe is there visiting, but it all takes place on Cass's Cass's, uh, property. Yes. Gabe is Denora's father. Cass is um, the owner of the dogs and dating Joe. Okay, yeah, because... Who is uh, Shaney's cousin. Yes. (laughs) Gabe is a little bit more, you can tell he's got kind of an addictive personality going Mm -hmm. on. He's clearly fucked up a lot more in his life he's an alcoholic he's not a deadbeat dad to a degree but he's got the restraining order on him so he can't see denora um there's he's got his problems working whereas Cass is in a position where he's like i'm starting to get things turned around for my life yes i've got joe i've got I slowly get a steady income going like he's he, he's starting to feel like he's on a path toward um something better for himself whereas gabe is still kind of like you know just kind of set in his ways to a degree. No one's really telling him. I mean, he he steals his father's gun. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's right. The one that they, he eventually, that eventually causes so much death uh, later, too. Actually, we're talking about the weird intrinsic connections between April, Nate, besides Nathan, there's also, you know, his dad, Victor Yellowtail, mm-hmm. who is the, like, who's like a, a police officer. Um, and he just 
gets killed by the elk woman because he's just there and is a is a problem. But then his father, or was it his grandfather? Yellowtail's father was Niche, right? Yeah. Or was or was his No, that makes sense. Because he was the one who was trying to kind of straighten our four characters out back in the day. That's right. That's right. <laughs> they pour one out for him too. In the they they say a prayer for him at the flat lodge as well mm-hmm. for Niche or Granddad. Sorry, I feel like we side I sidetracked us with the the yellow tails, but you know we were talking about Nathan. Mm-hmm. That's kind of important. Are aren't we aren't we glad he rode off on the paint horse and like <laughs> despite bleeding from a gunshot wound? <laughs> it's supp- supposedly he survives, so I will be hopeful. I hope he does. He lived. He's a good kid. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't deserve that. No, no matter what they believe he did before, because like that whole thing where he, we kind of find out why he was being brought in because he's so broken up about Trey's death. He, he did some stuff mm-hmm. like, well, yeah, we don't really know exactly how Trey died either. No. Presumably in a car accident, but who knows? Anyway, I hope Nathan's okay. <laughs> Along with the actual deaths caused by the Elkhead woman, there's other deaths that pop up quite a bit, like, uh, Trey's death and then it also is mentioned that um, Ricky's younger brother Cheeto dies from um... an overdose yeah there's also Junior who they find in Duck Lake mm-hmm. that gets brought up a couple times just a lot of a lot of death and a lot of and and again it gets tied back to well this is just what this is what happens because of where we are because of who we are and it's, it sucks and it really again the grittiness isn't all just an elf woman trying to kill people it's just the sad reality of life sometimes on the reservation. I'm not one to talk about that. I don't know that kind of life. And I think Stephen Graham Jones does a fantastic job of getting that across. Kind of what you you might understand some of the context of just from being on the outside looking in. But like, I appreciate that it gets into it, into the life and how it can be, how it might be. This book makes you, makes you think. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. I really do. Yeah, uh, I guess we probably should finish up with uh, Denora, our, our finals girl. And uh, Denora's rad as hell. <laughs> I like her. I really like her <laughs> as a character. Eat, sleep, breathe, basketball. Mm-hmm. I guess uh, I could get one question with this. Uh, this is actually uh, the final question in the book club. Uh, Denora brings the saga full circle in the end. How does she influence the outcome? How do her actions compare to the choices her father made? What is the relationship with her parents? The day's events have a significant ripple effect in the tribe. Why is Denora's story passed on? And actually, this act, uh, connects to another book club question. This is called Enhance Your Book Club Questions. Stories, lessons, and legends are passed down from one generation to the next. Discuss the theme of generational knowledge and how it is the, an undercurrent for each character and influences their decision. How has the history you've inherited influenced your life? How has it influenced these characters? That's deep. I don't know if we have enough time. I know. <laughs> well, I, I do like that aspect of that. Denora is ultimately the one who kind of passes into le- legend for her deeds, you know? Mm-hmm. Like some of the stories in- imply more infamy. Like, again, think of our uh, quartet yes. of, of men who commit an act that leads to their deaths. They do something infamous and cause, you know, something to happen. So, of course, in, in a situation like this, there's got to be a character who can set things right, a larger-than-life character, and that character happens to be Denora, mm-hmm. who almost seems supernaturally gifted with what she can do. The fact that there's this ultimate battle, sort of this, like, symbolic battle between good and evil 
quote unquote, that takes place as a basketball, as a basketball game. game is so cool. You know, I can only say this from like passing experience, but uh, when I was growing up in Idlewild, and this is like small mountain town in California, um, there were legends among the, the native people from that region about uh, Takish, who is this, uh, the, the spirit of this like demon shaman that lives under a rock on the mountain. And all the stories, like the folklore you hear about Takish uh, describe that there's eventually this this huge battle that takes take place between him and the chief of one of the tribes. And this battle is like said to like shake the mountains and cause a lot of the natural formations that are there. Like, oh, they threw boulders at each other. And because of this, they it made the mountains. And then they they fought throughout along the ground and made the crater for this lake. And, you know, just like all this stuff. So like, you know, there's a part in the basketball game where they almost describe it as like, because they did this, like these things happen and have repercussions for the tribe. And I think that was really cool framing it in that context of just a basketball game. It's, mm -hmm. It has the stakes are so high at that point that what seems like silly on the surface actually does have weight, has meaning and does have a mythical quality to it. Why Denora though? I, hmm. I think it's because what ends up happening in the end is rather than handling something through violence, at the very end of it, she kind of resolves it through mercy and through trying to understand instead of instead of just relying on a, on a violent instinct, you know? She does sort of break that cycle at the end, that, that violent cycle. I forget what character was saying how when they're young, they, they think that they will be, you know, like the, the next great hero that will, like, uh, bring freedom and, and peace and just... Uh, you know, finally prosperity to, to their people. That was, uh, that was Nathan. I think that was Nathan. But then you, they kind of like through, he kind of sees like, yeah, Cass and uh, Gabe are probably what I'll become. Cause you kind of, you get to the point where you realize, well, shit, life isn't really like that. These kind of broken ambitions that are passed down in terms of like generational knowledge that's passed down. And I think it was interesting that Denora, kind of breaks that she does become this sort of inspiring mm. legend that like propels um her people forward because women get shit done <laughs> <laughs> and then all <laughs> I think that in a lot of native american myths and legends i've heard generally that's the case women get shit done <laughs> uh and i think that's an interesting compared to like all the other native women and even Peta that we see in the story that I are brutally and needlessly like murdered. So I was really happy to see Denora come out somewhere positive. There was also like the question mentioned like this that generational knowledge that like kind of uh dictates what things happen down the line was also kind of applies to the elk. Because remember the whole the el the herd remembers the like the thing with the train. So Elkhead woman was afraid of the trains, and the 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 herd that was shot down that that violence it was remembered until Denora broke that cycle, and that's why like all this other shit ha kept happening. I don't know. I, that, that, that's me trying to like convey the thoughts that I had in response to the question, and I don't know how coherent that all was, but I tried. No, that. That made perfect sense in my brain. I, Me too. Honestly, I, I was thinking the same thing because it is a very difficult thing in general to break the cycle because that's what you were taught. This is what you see as you grow up. Um, this is the same story you're told over and over and over. And it does take a strong person to break that cycle. And Denora is absolutely portrayed as a strong individual. In a weird way. Maybe her and the elk head woman are kind of parallels 
because the you know, okay woman is in her own way trying to break is is like she's not going to just be a victim mm-hmm. she's going to strike back at the people who destroyed her and her calf but then a, then that's a side that creates a cycle in its own way cycle of violence and then that Denora helps turn that around. Mm-hmm. So there's parallels you could draw between them too. I would say it's more of an elk cycle than a human cycle. You know, <laughs> man, this is deep. Can't recall if we had a, a similar discussion like this. I think we really broke down themes when it came to demon theory as well. But this has whole nother layer to it. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's also aspects of the story that probably have gone over our heads or that we can't really fully dive into just from a a lack of understanding right but like just the experience overall has been quite wonderful and very thought-provoking like uh, like david keeps saying i like a book that makes me think and will keep me thinking afterward and this is a book i will definitely revisit at some point just for the sake of reading because the writing is beautiful it's gritty it's uh, a very unpleasant at times what gets described, but man, does it leave an impression. Mm-hmm. And I think that matters a lot. So I, despite how squicked out I can be about <laughs> with certain bits, um, I, I, I'm surprised I could handle the dead dog stuff. But I did because it was told well. So A+. Plus. I was in awe of this book. It is, like you said, it is gritty. It is well written. I, I love the perspective especially since it is so different from my own. And it does make me think. I like that there's a bit of surrealness to it because you know me, I'm always into surreal shit. But I also love that there is kind of a reference to the horror genre, like in terms of the slasher genre. It, that is a nice touch. It, it's just very well done. Um, actually, one of the questions, this is the final question that was uh, brought by uh, Dan. He said, how do you feel about the atypical structure and pacing of the book? The switching of narratives and main characters, it works. I think it mm-hmm. works very well. And like, I know that um, it might be off-putting for some people, but it does work in this story and actually does enhance it. Yeah, I have to agree with that. I I actually felt like I was going through this a lot faster than uh, I anticipated. Like there was no slowing down of it for me. Everything just moved very, not too fast, but like fluidly. I don't know. It was overall a really good experience. For me, there was like these levels of realism in just like aspects of like the the racism that's in there and just like the grittiness of like reality. But then there's the surrealness of like the weird stuff that's happening, the, the spiritual stuff that's happening. And it just like blended really well together to just give you this overall just gets under your skin kind of feeling. You know what's under my skin? What? Hitler! <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Um, I will say uh, this is probably my favorite book this year. I mean, it's only uh, May, but... What else have we read already this year? Did we... Was Cemetery Boys still this year? No, that was December. Then yeah, this is also my favorite. <laughs> so far. I think Secret of Ventriloquism <laughs> is a close second for me, though. We got a lot more coming. <laughs> uh, speaking of books that we will be reading soon, our next book, we're going to another country. We're going to Japan, everyone. Pack your bags. Uh, Woo! <laughs> Uh, we will be reading The Graveyard Apartment by Mariko Koike. I apologize if I butchered that name. I will assure you that when we do discuss it uh, next month, that I will look up how to pronounce her name properly. But um, this is a book I've been wanting to read for a while. Yeah, it it has been on our uh, list of options for quite a while. Fantastic. I look forward to reading it. 
Um, if you like what you hear, please uh, listen to other podcasts on the Creative Horror Network, like Undercooked Analysis and uh, Midnight Marinara and Trick or Track and etc. Check us out at creativehorror.com or check us out on the YouTube channel. We're right now getting a backlog of our Darkly Lit episodes every other week, so feel free to check out our old episodes there. Uh, also, we have a Cryptid Creature Writing Challenge going on. Uh, we will be judging with the help of Animal Fact Files. The due date to submit your story is uh, July 4th at 11.59pm uh, Pacific Standard Time. The word limit is 1,500 words. You can look up the rules on creativehorror.com or check out Animal Fact Files' YouTube channel to learn more. You, there should be a video still there. Awesome. What are you looking at me for? You look like I got antlers sprouting out of my head. Good evening, intrepid listeners. This is the Pasta Shade, the host of Midnight Marinara, and this podcast is part of creativehorror.com a network of podcasts and creators working together to build a constructive community of horror fans. For more content like this, visit us at creativehorror.com. <laughs>